Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with Wealth Formula Podcast. I have a cold again, and that's what happens when you have a bunch of little kids, right? Age eight, five, and two. This household has been like nonstop cold for, I don't know, like three weeks. Wow. Anyway, um, so my my voice is hoarse, but fortunately not for the entire for the interview part, which was done earlier. I want to start out by uh, reminding you about a few things uh, specifically. Make sure you check out uh, wealthformula.com, where you can still get all sorts of uh, useful downloads, including my book Seven Secrets of Eternal Wealth, uh, which is the number one bestseller on Amazon, but can be yours for absolutely free as a PDF download. Now, in terms of today's show, this should be a good one. I'm going to read you a quote, which uh, may be somewhat un- uncharacteristic for this show. Sexual transmutation is the most powerful tool in existence when it comes to creation, invention, accomplishment, creativity, advancement, and achievement. That was a quote from Napoleon Hill from Think and Grow Rich. That is one of my favorite uh, books of all time, by the way. And um, it's, it's, it's funny, though, that there's a chapter in that book that is about this concept of sexual transmutation. And it's the chapter that no one ever talks about in that book. And if you've read the book, you know kind of why. It's well, it's kind of a, it's a little bit of a weird chapter, right? In the middle of this book, which is probably the most mimicked self-help books in history. I mean, in fact, I remember watching this movie called The Secret, right? And it was like a big thing back in the 90s. And when I read this book, they were talking about that secret in this book. And this was big, written back like in the 20s or 30s. Anyway, totally ripped off. Every every self-help book rips off from this book. But let's get back to this concept of sexual transmutation. So in this chapter, in a nutshell, Napoleon Hill says that what he's really saying is that harnessing sexual energy is the most powerful and efficient means of accomplishing our platonic goals. That's really what he's saying, Okay. And it took me a little while to understand what he meant. Uh, But, you know, I I think I get it now. And this is how I interpret it. So if you've ever been a teenage boy, or maybe you have one, who knows, 
you know there's a period of time, for the most part, uh, where little else seems to matter other than teenage girls. And, um, you know, I, I actually used to be a teenage boy myself hundreds of years ago, and I certainly remember that phase. And I'm not talking about necessarily anything seedy. What I'm saying is that there's a certain, you know, there's a certain part of your life or time in your life when it seems like you're just obsessed right there's really nothing else you can think about is other than other than in my case other you know a, a girls of course uh, you know most people eventually find a little bit of a balance with these thoughts and other important details in life other people don't by the way and that's a source of other problems altogether however it is hard to argue isn't it that there's anything more powerful than that kind of obsession so now for a second Hold on to that feeling of obsession that I'm talking about, you know, that teenage boy stuff. And then for a second, take the whole sexual reference out of the equation altogether, right? And what are you left with? Well, have you ever been so obsessed with something in your life that you can't stop thinking about it? You may, you may certainly be one of those people. I know I have been, um, when I was a kid growing up in Minnesota, for example, ice hockey was on my mind all the time. And it's and it, had it not been, you know, for a, a career-ending back injury, I probably would have played college hockey. And, and you know, who, who knows how far I could have gone. But one thing's for sure, I uh, was obsessed. And the funny thing was that by Minnesota standards, I started playing organized hockey a little late. I was nine years old. And in Minnesota, usually, you know, that's about five years too late. I mean, usually you start to skate and then you learn to walk after that. Well, I was eight, you know, eight or nine years old. And when I first started playing hockey and I started skating, I couldn't even stop. So that was kind of a problem for me um, because, you know, I would skate and I'd be moving what used to be pretty quickly for me. And then I had no way to stop, so eventually I would run into something and fall down. But four years later, I went from really the worst guy in the park league, which is like, you know, anybody can get in the park league, to one of the best guys on one of the, the state's best teams. How did I do it? Well, I was obsessed. I ate, breathed, and slept hockey. That's what I did. And that made up for a lot of my other shortcomings. And over the years... I've had similar obsessions at times in my life. For example, when I decided I wanted to be a doctor, you know, I suddenly just got this crazy obsession with how I was going to get into med school. And I remember the application process and thinking about it all the time, you know, the MCATs and all that, how are you going to do great? I mean, it was just obsessed. And then finally, as an entrepreneur, of course, that's my life now. And I have been uh, obsessed with the creation of uh, various business throughout my career now. And the successful ones are the ones that I have, have at one point or another had sort of this obsession with. You know, the one thing that drives obsession of all kind is the desire for some kind of accomplishment. So let's go back to the sexual transmutation thing. Well, when it comes to teenage boys and, and, you know, that kind of obsession. We know what uh, that accomplishment is, but for the entrepreneur, it's something very different. The most successful entrepreneurs that I know are not, in fact, driven by money. They are driven by the idea 
of creating something out of nothing and seeing it come to life. Money is just a way uh, to keep score. That's, that's an important point, right? Because a lot of people who enter entrepreneurship or become entrepreneurs because they want to make a lot of money, a lot of times fail because they're obsessing about the scorecard, not how to win the game, right? And, and the game itself. So again, the idea of creating something out of nothing and seeing it come to life is really the entrepreneurial spirit, right? Money is just a way to keep score. Now, I use the example of entrepreneurship here, but it really applies to just about anything in life. I mean, Napoleon Hill's sexual transmutation chapter is really nothing more than a reference to the power of being obsessed with something. And think about it, Olympic athletes, world-class chess players, musicians, you name it, they aren't half-assing stuff, right? They are not you know, they, they, they are quintessentially obsessed and it's the highest achievers in the world who harness that obsessive energy to do extraordinary things. That's what Napoleon Hill was talking about. So my guest on this week's Wealth Formula podcast, is the, he's perfect for this topic. He's a kindred soul. He is as much of a raging entrepreneur as I am and he's one of the most interesting people I've ever met. So when we come back, we'll talk to George Newberry of American Homeowner Preservation. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest is uh, is a friend of the show who's, who's now making his third appearance on Wealth Formula Podcast. That is a first for anybody, it is a uh, longtime friend of the show, uh, George Newberry, who most people know from American Homeowner Preservation. And George, welcome back to the show. I mean, I, I, I'm uh, super excited. You've been with us from the beginning. I appreciate that, Buck, that warm uh, introduction. I had no idea that I was setting records today, though, so that's, uh, that's great to hear. Too bad it's not yet an Olympic sport, but maybe one day. Well, you know, we're coming upon the 100th show, so if you think about it, you're making up like, I don't know, 3% of the shows. That's pretty <laughs> impressive, right? You know, one of the things that I really wanted to talk to you about today, George, is that, you know, obviously we'll get to American Homeowner Preservation, all of, of what you're currently doing, including this great course that's coming up. But I wanted to really talk to you today about the entrepreneurial spirit, because when I go back and I think about you and your you know, your book, Burn Zones, by the way, you can still get a free copy of that on uh, wealthformula.com. If you go there, George will send you a free copy. But but the, what strikes me is you are as entrepreneurial as anybody I know. And what drives you? Well, first of all, why don't you, why don't you talk a little bit about what I'm alluding to? Because this goes way back to when you're a teenager, right? Or even before that. Even before that, I, 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 so, so I always like I'd be hiking with my dad, and when I was a kid, and I'd always be thinking about businesses. Um, and you know, I got my I 
first paper out at seven. And, uh, and then I actually ended up doing both the two local papers. I ended up delivering them both. And that was seven years old. I did that for a few years. And then, um, and then I bought this ice cream tricycle, which seems like, you know, there's a picture of it in burn zone. So people can actually see what it looks like. It's, it was fairly elaborate and I'd go around, pedal it around the, uh, the neighborhood and sell ice cream, uh, you know, like ice cream sandwiches, uh, snow cones, stuff like that, and go to f- high school football games and, uh, and, you know, made money that way. And that was, you know, it was probably like between 10 or 11 and 13. And, and then when I was 14, I, I started a, a record company. And so all these things, they were just like ideas, but I was pretty, you know, my mind would kind of run wild. And then I would, I would say, well, you know, I always figured that, you know, I could do anything anyone else could. So, and if I just, if, you know, it's some lofty goal, then I just have to take a little step and then another little step and then another little step. And by doing that, eventually you hit the big goal. You stay focused, determined and optimistic more than anything. Uh, you know, and that usually will help me achieve what I've wanted, you know, with one big exception, you know, as, as you'll read in burn zones, so it was one time, no matter what I did, it, I, I just couldn't win. Uh, and that kind of brought me down. But um, up until that point, I had this extraordinary string of success. And it wasn't that everything I touched turned to gold. Some of them weren't so, so easy. And I ended up, um, you know, they were, I just had to work extra hard to make them a success, even when things weren't going, um, going as expected. So one of the things that strikes me about this whole thing, and, and it, it still continues to be the case today, is it hasn't really been, you know, entrepreneurship hasn't been, uh, the driving force behind it wasn't making money. Of course, that's something that is in your mind. But as a kid, is that what you were thinking initially? Like, was it all, you know, just driven by wanting to make money? Or was there something else even back then? No, I don't know why, but it's never really money was a, a way to keep score to actually prove that what That's I did right. was a success um, and, and show other people, hey, or just show myself, hey, I made money doing this. And that was a, just a measure. But the reality was just it, it's always been the challenge and the chase has been more. And, and maybe this isn't a good thing necessarily that that's been the allure. Hey, you know, the journey's fun. And, um, and let me, let me take something, it, it, you know, I'm often gravitating towards stuff that is, it's not easy. It, it, the likelihood of me accomplishing it in most people's minds would not be great. And so the path will not be a straight, you know, an easy path, but it'll probably be a more difficult path where I'm pivoting, 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 pivoting. And, uh, and this, just the, the, the actual achievement or accomplishment of achieving whatever that goal, which seems for, to outsiders may have been unlikely, uh, that's been more the draw than anything to prove I can do it. So you know what this reminds me of, which I, I've, I've kind of thought about this with you before, is that sometimes I wonder about this because, as you know, I'm kind of, you know, I'm, 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 I share that entrepreneurial spirit with you, and my CPA describes me as a raging entrepreneur or a flaming entrepreneur or whatever. And, and one of the things that makes me think is, is like how much of this is genetic, right? And when I think about you, a curious thing about you and your name is that, you know, George Newberry is also the name of an airport in, in Argentina, correct? It is, absolutely. He's my great, and I'm going to mess it up. It's, the proper term is in burn zones, but I think he's my great granduncle. 
if I'm not mistaken. And he's a sports hero, a national hero in Argentina uh, in sports and aviation. He was a pioneer and he would push the envelope. He really um, tried to do some extraordinary things. In fact, they called him Mr. Courage, Spanish, of course, because he would take extraordinary risks. And this is to my, you know, this, this spirit or genes, whatever it is, isn't a complete blessing at all. You know, there, there's a, a, da- a dark side, I guess, to it in that he died doing a ballooning, you know, during a ballooning accident. Um, and, you know, I've you know, made a lot of money, but I also lost it all and had some really challenging years um, as a result of that. So it's not, it, it, you know, sometimes, you know, you say, God, wouldn't it have been easier just to either do a, a more modest business, not always shoot for the fences, but sometimes swing for the, you know, just take some singles or doubles once in a while. And uh, maybe life would be a little bit easier. But, but I, I, I agree with you that it's, I think some people, uh, are genetically coded that they want to have constantly challenge themselves. And certainly my great grand uncle was one of those people and he perished as a result. Uh, but he had a legendary life. And then, you know, you and me, I think we're, we're similarly blessed or afflicted. I'm yeah. not sure. I guess, <laughs> There's depends no on question about people's it. Perspective. You're so right. And, and that's just what I, again, resonates with your story for me is that, um, you know, you've said a few things here that I think I just want to really hit hard again one is that it's either a blessing or a curse who knows but it just is right Mm -hmm. a lot of people um like the idea of being an entrepreneur the reality is it's something like you either are or you aren't now i will say that it took me personally a, a little bit of while to discover that i was one because i never really had um you know i went the traditional route i became a physician but then a spirit just took over in me and it was just something I couldn't resist. It's just who I am. Now, when I go back and I think about some of my doctor friends living comfortably and they're, you know, they don't have these moments where 70% of the time they're like, oh, shoot, oh, shoot, oh, shoot. <laughs> and then, you know, once in a while they go, oh, yeah, <laughs> right. Uh-huh. There's, that seems like a very comfortable way to live. But that's just not me, right? And so that's affliction in many ways that I think entrepreneurs share, right? I mean, that's that's what you're talking about. It's not that you want to do this. It's just who you are. Yeah, and you just find different outlets to do it. Right. I mean, it, it could be – I could be doing mortgages, but I could be doing stocks or I could be selling cars. Um, it, you're going to find a way to kind of figure out the business and then try to find a way to innovate and do it better or find some other product or, or, or service that you can do the same with. I mean, certainly you can ask our wives, and I imagine they may say, <laughs> you know, at times this is definitely a curse oh, yeah. uh, because this, you know, we, we, it's it's not – and I, I can't speak for you, but I can speak for myself, you know, my wife, my, the number one thing she asked for me is, is time, and and I haven't been great. Uh, she knew what she was getting into, but I want to do better, and I really am making strides. And 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 uh, you know, this is the first business, AHP, where a it's ten years old, so that's a long time for me um, in one business where it's really been my focus. And and you know, I think the results have have shown it, but also. Um, and I don't know if I've shared much of this with you, but I, I'm I'm actually stepping aside as a CEO in the next March 5th. So, yeah. So let's talk about American homeowner preservation again. And, you know, we've talked about this uh, many times on the show before. And uh, obviously, I mention it uh, on pretty much every show. Just a, a quick review on what American homeowner preservation 
does and 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 you know you might even include since we're talking about it how you kind of got into this thing and where it's where it's come to sure sure as some of you know when you know you read in my uh, as you certainly know about and you read in burn zones you know i i had a pretty good sized um, portfolio of apartments about four thousand apartments across the country in in uh 2004 when an ice storm hit my biggest property and, and triggered this extraordinary sequence of events which left me uh Penniless, I lost everything and $26 million in debt. And uh, that was, you know, 2005, 2006. And, you know, I was looking for something, you know, a way to rebuild myself. And, you know, I, even at that point, I considered getting a job. Um, but I said, okay, well, I, I, I had an idea. You know, I started hearing about, you know, the mortgage crisis that was starting, just starting to, to um, make the headlines. And I thought, hey, maybe, maybe I can share what I, what I learned being a debtor with so much debt and that experience, maybe I can um, help uh, other families who are going through the same thing. And so I, I helped start a nonprofit called American Homeowner Preservation. And we were going, our mission was to help families at risk of foreclosure stay in their homes. But then, um, you know, we worked and, and thousands of families came to us and we, we helped some, but not as many as we'd like, mostly because the servicers and the, the banks weren't very receptive to solutions that made a lot of sense. You know, for instance, a family would want to stay in their home and you know apply to Aquin to do a modification, and they may have owed a hundred, and the home was worth fifty because it had dropped in value. But Aquin would it would take them sometimes a year or two to to process the modification request, and ultimately they'd come back and say, "Hey, you're not approved," and uh, and then they'd kick the foreclose, kick the family out. And but what was notable and and, and striking for us was you know once they kick the family out, home gets vandalized, and then they sell for 25000 And, and we, we said, hey, we're witnessing destruction of value, which is to no one's benefit. The homeowners are losing. The investors are losing. Yeah. It didn't make sense. So we said, hey, we're going to start buying these loans. And that's what we did. And, and we kind of found a better way to do this. And eventually it's evolved into our current iteration where we crowdfund. You know, anyone can invest with us. We crowdfund the monies that are used to buy these loans as little as a hundred dollars and anyone in non-accredited and accredited investors are welcome. And that's really, it's gone very well. We've grown larger and larger to the point where now, you know, I I think the constraint to our growth at this point is me and it's a, you know, kind of revelation six months ago. I'm the one that's been working the hardest and had the vision and executed it. But right now, if I want HP to be, be the next Aquin, to be an institutional company that's traded on, you know, on a public stock exchange, how do I get there? Because I think we have a great concept, we have a great strategy, but we need to build it. And I can't, I, I just have, I've, one thing I failed at is, is really being a, a great team builder and team leader. I think I do okay at it and I've gotten better at it, but as the team's grown, I'm, I just don't capture um, all their effort. That's, and- that's another you know, that's another like classic entrepreneurial thing, right? I mean, and <laughs> it I, is. I have so, a similar issue, I mean, to the extent that like you grow something to a certain size and it's a tremendous success. And at that point, you're like, what do you do from here? Well, I'm not at this point, I'm not really a you know world-class operator. What I am is a, a you know, a, a good entrepreneur and a, an idea guy, a vision guy. And it's really hard for some of us to to pull those things apart because I think that's why a lot of small business um, people, entrepreneurs end up failing because they can't let go. 
right? Mm-hmm. That's where that's where you know Robert Kiyosaki talks about the the S quadrant, right? And obviously, you're way beyond sort of just a small business operator, but but it's like part of the curse is is not understanding, uh, or, or as Robert Kiyosaki. Um, once sang when he was describing this, nobody does it better, right? That's what he described the self, the the small business person, the self-employed person, because you have to understand that you have a certain talent, a superpower, and at some point, if you want to go to the next level, you need a different skill set to plug in, right? And, and very few people have both skill sets, so you need yeah. to take yours out and put someone else's in. Yep, and exactly. That's, it's really hard to come to that realization, but you know, I came to it because a friend of mine had the exact same situation, and he said, "Hey, hi, the CEO," and all of a sudden, all the employees were happy; they were contributing more. And it's just—it's like he waved a magic wand. So I said, "Okay, I'm going to do the same thing," um, because otherwise, this company is going to—you know—I'm going to be working crazy hours for the rest of my life, and the company. It's not going to get where where it could grow, and right. so I'm stepping aside, and I have hired a CEO who comes from a publicly traded servicer and has done a um, extraordinary job building the team there, and um, and she's going to join March 5th, and it's going to be a big transition yeah. because actually she doesn't want it, it, it. She wants to be number one. She's number two where she's at. She wants to be number one, undisputed, and so she doesn't even want me part of the day part of the day-to-day operations. I could do the transition and then I'm pretty much uh, going to meet with her once a week. It's going to be a really, yeah. I mean, it's, I have to really trust her, which I do. And, uh, but it's, it's hard to let go. It's like a, a kid that I've grazed and now yeah. I'm saying, okay, yeah. I've taught you everything I can, but now I have to hand you off to someone who can teach you a lot more than I can. Yeah. Luckily for me too, I, I have a person like that who's taken over my Chicago businesses and it mm-hmm. is, once you can really trust it, it's, it's really liberating. But one of the challenges that you have in this situation is again, you know, you have a certain spirit and you have a certain ethos and you have to m- make sure that that person, uh, uh, can 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 continue with that uh and and really you know stand for your values and and what you're all about right that's been one of the hardest parts oh the the to find the right person was really tough we um and this was the first time i was really i did this correctly because uh, usually i'm a fairly fast fast to hire which is like completely what you're not supposed to do but there's <laughs> yeah, usually right. some urgent need so i hire somebody in a hurry so here i did it really slow we did four or five regular interviews. We did a personality profile, a behavioral interview. We went to dinner uh, with her, her and her significant other. And, and we did this with actually a few people, uh, a few candidates. Um, some of them didn't get as far down the road as others, but it was really interesting. And you'd see some people, some candidates who at the outset, you say, well, this is like the perfect candidate. And, uh, but then you get further down the road and you say, oh, maybe they're not so good. And, and it was really the fact that it was a three month long process. And, uh, and you actually saw multiple people going down the same process, you know, the, the leader or the, the winner emerged, um, and, and made absolutely the most sense that this is the right person. So I'm, I'm confident, um, that we made the right choice and now it's a matter for her to execute and prove that the choice was the right one. Yeah. So where does that leave George Newberry? I mean, what, what's, what's next? So this transition will take a few months, I mean, a couple of months. Uh, and then, 
and then I'm still guiding at high level. We have a lot of, you know, we're becoming a servicer, uh, which I think is a huge step and a, Explain and a wise one. Explain what that means, because I think a lot of people sure, probably don't yeah, know what that means. Good question. Uh, so mortgage servicers, basically, many a times people think, oh, I make my payments to someone like Aquin or Bank of America or Wells Fargo. And that is right. But they're not necessarily the person or the entity that owns the loan. Many a times they're simply servicing it and collecting a monthly fee, and the money actually goes to some third-party entity that really holds the mortgage. Uh, and in AHP's case, you know, we're the mortgage holder, but we have to contract with third-party servicers today to execute our strategies. And it's always a slight disconnect because they do it ever for 95% of their clients. They do it one way, and then for for AHP, they do it a different way. And uh, that's always been imperfect. And so now we're going to not only service our loans in this way, which is basically collect payments, work out resolutions, uh, approve modifications, things like that. And then, but we're going to do it for others, uh, for other companies, other individual investors, whoever wants to service it in a socially responsible manner, which we've proven actually generates better returns than doing it in the typically socially irresponsible manner that most servicers act yeah. in. Uh, that's what we're looking to do. So you found an inefficiency in the system. And, it's a, and yeah, we're, that's basically a business, right? It's an opportunity. Yeah. And this this is a classic entrepreneur. This is a classic entrepreneurial move, and I, I'm sure you'll appreciate it. Absolutely, it is right. But look at this. Because of a lot of servicers, the smaller ones are closing down or consolidating because they see big risks in the market. The CFPB has been very, very aggressive on compliance. So if you're not good, your record keeping is not great, or your compliance isn't up to snuff, you're going to get a fine, and the fines are, are in some cases, millions of dollars. So it's just some people are just being put in out of business because of the fines. Others are saying oh, the threat of fines, and they're saying, well, we're going to have to upgrade our technology, our compliance department, better to shut down or sell out. And so when everybody else is running away from an opportunity or from a business, then what does an entrepreneur do? Right. They run right towards it. And it's just like when everybody's buying real estate, like today, you know, it may not be the optimum time to buy, but you know, the crash of 2009, 10, 11, when people were running away from real estate, it was probably an ideal time to buy. And you know, that, that crash environment will return at some point. Sure. Um, but same thing here, everyone runs away from servicing, then you, then it creates the opportunity. And I think that's something we're trying to seize. Yeah. Yeah. So AHP becomes, um, uh, less of your focus. In fact, it, it becomes sort of more of a high level vision thing. And, um, and then now we focus on the servicing world. You know, one of the things that I like about you is the social ethos. And, and one of the reasons why, despite the fact that there are now a lot of note, uh, note buyer companies and funds that you're the only one I've ever invested with. And you're the only one I've ever really, uh, you know, promoted actively because I really believe in your, um, you know, what you're doing. But what's interesting to me is that, you know, George Newberry and AHP always had a special sauce that made this happen. And unlike Coca-Cola, <laughs> unlike <laughs> Kentucky Fried Chicken and the Colonel, you're going to release this special sauce, right? So, so tell us about that, because this is, I mean, I, I have to admit, I'm really excited about, you know, learning this too, but t tell us about the event. 
Sure. So we're uh, this is one time only. This is basically my last day of day-to-day operations at AHP is April 17th. So April 18th and 19th, I'm going to share everything I've learned over the last 10 years. I'm inviting all the people that I've um, that I've worked with, you know, in a significant capacity over the last 10 years to join us and share their knowledge. And and, and in fact, Buck, you're coming. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we are um, going to show people how to buy notes make a financial profit, but also have a positive social impact. And the two are not mutually exclusive. In fact, they're very, you, you win financially, you can definitely win uh, socially for the family and, per, and, and create some pretty financially transformative solutions for both parties, for the investor and the, um, and the homeowners. And this is something that, you know, we've iterated, iterated, iterated over the last 10 years. And I think it's become formulaic. And but again, like I, I mentioned, you know, these servicers, 95% of their clients go to use an old, outdated playbook in our, at least in our mind. And then we use this new playbook, which we think is uh, is better for all parties. And that's what we want to share. And so we're going to go step by step through. You know, if you decided to buy a loan, how are you going to find the buy, find the sellers, and how much do you pay? What kind of due diligence do you do? Taxes, servicing, uh, recording. How do you raise capital if you grow, you know, beyond the capital that you have on hand? These are all things where people need to know. When I learned, it was very much trial and error, and we certainly made some mistakes. Uh, and we probably were blessed with the fact that we started buying, you know, during the crisis. So <laughs> our mistakes, we did okay you because we bought the factor loan so then. cheap. Yeah. And now it's a little tighter and a little more competitive. So if you make a mistake, it can be more costly. Uh, but that's what we want to do. We want to we want to inspire and train a new generation of note buyers um, who can do this in a social responsible manner, but are still going to be driven. They it needs to make sense. And that's one of the reasons we're no longer a nonprofit. You know, you can really scale things when there's a you're doing a good thing, but you're also making a profit. Right. Then it becomes, hey, this thing can really scale. So that that's that's what we're looking forward to doing. So so your is your goal? Are you going to make this thing? Um, the idea here is if you go to this two day event, that you hopefully should be able to come out and potentially start literally, you know, taking action right away. I- Absolutely. In fact, we're going to, at the event, we're going to have loans that are for sale and we're going to, and you don't have to buy them, but you can choose to buy them. And, and during the, the course, we're going to probably give everybody a loan, uh, at least a portion of the course, give them a loan, which they can then run through the due diligence. And so actually they're, they're kind of underwriting or reviewing that loan. And at the end of the class, the course, they decide, hey, I'm going to buy this. Or I'm not going to buy it. And just to make sure that everybody feels like, hey, I'm getting a really competitive price before the event, we're going to put these loans out for sale to all the regular sellers that uh, we deal with. And and we'll also have some other probably sellers that participate, all the other buyers, I should say, institutional and private parties. And we'll say what they bid. And the people that come to the the course, we're going to share, here was the high bid. And then maybe do a little background kind of uh, reverse engineering and see how those bidders came up with those bids. And, uh, and then they could simply match that bid, or if there's multiple people who want want the uh, the loan, then they could um, you know outbid each other until they come to a price that they want to pay. But we don't want to have you know sometimes we see uh, a new buyer you know overpays, and we we definitely we want our, anyone who comes to the course if they buy a note now or 
uh, at the course or in the months after, we want them to succeed and become bigger note buyers and clients of HP servicing, ideally. And the only way they're going to do that is if they succeed early on. If they buy a couple loans, they lose, then you know, that's kind of the end. They'll move on to something else. Yeah. So we want to set people up for success. So, you know, I, if I'm listening to this and I don't know you and we, and I do know you and I understand why you're doing this, part of me's thinking, you know, if I don't know you, I'm thinking, why would this guy want to set up an entire, you know, new group of competitors to my mm-hmm. business? What, how do you answer that? Oh, easy, easy. This problem, so I'll look, from a social perspective, this problem is much, much greater than HP could ever have enough money to buy. Uh, and so I'm not naive saying, oh, we'll, we'll just buy everything. We'll, we'll, we'll own the market. It's not the way, that way. And HP servicing, ideally, we can, we can scale huge as a servicer. Uh, and so I'm certainly inviting everybody who buys loans to service through us. Uh, I think we'll be priced competitively and our, our performance will be much better than the competition. Uh, but that's why I'm, I'm building future clients of AHP servicing and the opportunities. I mean, there's people who come to the event may have a relationship or a contact who mm. has, you know, pools of loans that we don't know about uh, that we may never have contact with. So I'm not, yeah. I'm not, I'm not even going to think that, that we're going to own the market. Also, Today, it's a pretty strong real estate market. So the, 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 there are loans available, and most of it's the overhang from the last crash. But there'll be another crash based on historic real estate cycles that'll happen in the next year, two years, three years. At some point, there's another crash. And then there's another huge uh, opportunity for people to buy mortgages. So I want, I want people to know how to do this, uh, to buy these mortgages. We can provide the servicing, uh, but they buy. They'll find these opportunities. Um, you know, there'll be people at, at the event who can sell you loans, who can connect you with loans, and just those relationships. I, I want to build a new um, ecosystem, and um, you know, ultimately, HP Servicing is in the, in the hub of it, but everybody else is, is levering off of it and making money and, and delivering transformative solutions for families at the same time. This is, uh, this is really exciting to be, uh, George. And first of all, I also uh, just want to mention, George was kind enough to invite me to be on a panel, uh, but... And I'll, well, really, I'm going there because I am super excited to learn this business. I mean, this is a just an incredible opportunity to learn from, you know, somebody who I think is an incredible entrepreneur, highest level of ethics, and um, who's actually shown that he's got, you know, a, a, a business model that works. Now, what? Okay, so if I'm again, let me ask you another question. So if I, how much money do I got? Do I got to have? <laughs> Right. Because I might be thinking, well, yeah, shoot, George is, you know, raising millions of bucks and and all that. I, I'm not going to be able to do that. I've got maybe, you know, fifty thousand dollars a year to play with or maybe one hundred thousand dollars. I mean, is it worth coming out if, if you're if you're in that? Absolutely. I mean, we just sold a loan today for twenty seven thousand dollars. And that's not even the low end. Uh, that's mid to low. Uh, we do sell individual loans, uh, and, and we buy individual loans for 5,000, 10,000. So there's definitely some, um, opportunities at the very low level. I mean, one thing I have to say though, if the caution, uh, your listeners is this isn't, Hey, I'm going to buy five and, and make five or buy, put out 20 and make 40. You will have those results upon occasion, but you also have other ones where, um, you, you make, five ten thousand dollars you do some work for it and you'll lose occasionally so i'd encourage people to 
buy a handful of loans. Uh, so maybe they're spending 50 or 100, but they're buying you know five or eight loans or something like that, just so you mitigate the risk. Because if you buy one and it's a loser, that's not going to feel so good. If you buy eight and six or seven win and the other two lose, you'll still make some money in all likelihood. And you know that's going to be something where you say, hey, I made a return. Let me keep going. The next time I can do 10 or 20 and, and, and keep growing. I really want to you know, I went down this path myself without any guidance, no training. I just figured it out, asked people questions wherever I could, went to conferences, uh, but nothing was speaking directly to me as a new note buyer. That's what I want. So this is whether you're new or whether you're experienced, you're going to learn things here from, um, you know, from the, from the very beginnings on up to how do we crowdfund capital? What do you need to do that? Because uh, ultimately, so if we can inspire some note buyers who get as big as us, those are going to be great clients for us. And, uh, and so I'm, we're going to open the, I mean, everything we've learned, we're going to have our attorney there who does our crowdfunding. He's going to be on a panel sharing, here's how you crowdfund capital. Here's how you market to, uh, to investors. We're going to share all that. Uh, because I think it's important and, and valuable. And some of the people that are on some of the panels are going to be, I think, learning from some of the other panelists in terms of some of the notes uh, buyers, existing funds that we do business with every day and sell loans to us. You know, they want to learn how do we crowdfund this capital because uh, many of them want to do it as well. And that's great. We want, to, we want to show them how to do that just as much as other. we want to show other people how to buy notes and scale their businesses. Yeah, and to your point, the reason George has got me on a panel is not because I know anything about this business. I know as little as most people out there. I want to go and learn. But George, um, I, I think George is, uh, you know, I, I do raise money and I've had some success doing that. Uh, and I think George's uh, idea was to get me on there as, you know, how do you potentially go out and, and raise money and, and the marketing aspect of that, which uh, I'm happy to share. By the way, um, I want to make sure uh, before we go that, George, you, with American Homeowner Preservation, right now we're, we're at that point where it's still uh, delivering 12%. Um, that's going to change. Can you tell us a little bit about that in case people want to get some money in there before? before yeah, the, it changes. Yeah, yeah. Sure. No, I appreciate you bringing that up. So American Home and Preservation, right now we're raising capital into our 2015 A-plus fund, which will be open until May 24th of this year, so another uh, few months. And once it closes, we're, um, the next fund that we offer will be um, at 10%. We're working on the submission to the SEC right now, but we're, um, that's going to be submitted at, at a 10% uh, annual return. And as opposed to 12%. But just to be clear, everyone who's in the 2015A plus who invests now or on May 24th, uh, that money will continue to earn the up to the 12% that, that that it always has paid. And that's uh, and that that fund will be open and paying for about like at least two years or something like that. Yeah, it's a five-year fund. So okay. for for the next, they put their money in it. It'll be up there. It'll be in there for as long as five years. Fantastic. Well, listen again. This is called the Note Buyer Boot Camp. And if you want to go, which I strongly encourage you to do, I'm going to be there. It's April 18th and 19th uh, in Chicago. Where Where are you doing it? Do you know yet? Sure. It's at 440 South LaSalle. It's in the um, It's one financial place. It's the same building as the Chicago Stock Exchange. Oh, really? Cool. I haven't actually been inside of that building. Yeah, it's nice. So I will be doing a homecoming. It'll be the first time I'm coming back to Chicago uh, since <laughs> my move, just for just for the event. And uh, we'll have a Wealth Formula event there that hopefully George will also join us at. Um, if nice. you want to go to this, folks, you uh, go to wealthformula.com 
and um, click on the icon. There is a coupon. I believe it's a $200 off uh, coupon for the Note Buyer Bootcamp. And make sure you go. This is if you know a lot of people ask me all the time about ways that they can get involved with investments on their own. And listen, maybe this is for you, maybe it's not, but this is you know, this is one of the better opportunities I've seen in a long time because I know George, and George is not some BS artist who hasn't done it, who has a course on how to do it. You see that all the time. All right, George is not that guy. So if you want to learn from somebody who really knows what they're doing, check that out. George, thanks so much for being on Wealth Formula Podcast again. I really appreciate it, Buck. We'll be right back. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hope you enjoyed that conversation. You know, I really like that George Newberry. And uh, by the way, if you have not invested in his fund yet, American Homeowner Preservation, check that out, ahpfunding.com. And um, you should consider it now if you're going to, because again, as George mentioned, that 12% preferred rate is about to disappear. Now, I also want to encourage you to make, um, make it out to the Note Buyer Boot Camp on April 18th and 19th, and we will make sure to have some kind of wealth formula gathering somewhere there in Chicago. That should be a lot of fun. Um, it will be my first time back uh, to Chicago since moving Santa Barbara, and um, and so that's that's going to be kind of exciting for me. I love Chicago. I'm going to see a lot of people I haven't seen in a long time, and hopefully I'll get to see you in person and uh, make sure to do that. Go to go to wealthformula.com and grab that $200 off coupon. I'm also going to be on some panels there uh, as well. So it should be a lot of fun. Um, and I really am excited about the content more than anything else, honestly. You know, it has been a great couple weeks here in um, Wealth Formula land. Uh, we had two big raises uh, that are now completely funded. One for self-storage and another for my cryptocurrency fund. And these were open to accredited investors only, of course, because they were Regulation D506C. If participating in these kinds of things interests you and you are an accredited investor, make sure uh, that you sign up for Investor Club at WealthFormula.com. And um, I also want to just remind you, uh, and I'm using this opportunity so since you feel bad for me that I have a cold, <clears throat> that you'll go to iTunes or Stitcher or whatever you're doing. And if you like this show, give us a five-star review and subscribe to the show, of course, because that's what keeps our guest quality up. We have to show that people are listening. People like this show, and the way that you show that in Cyber World is by showing your five-star love. Anyway, that's it for me this week. This is Buck Joffrey with Wealth Formula Podcast signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. 
The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.